Welcome back to Humans of Purpose. I'm your host, Mike Davis, and each week I bring you conversations with local purpose-driven leaders. Leaders creating social impact through their work and inspiring positive social change across a wide variety of sectors. Sit back, tune in, and enjoy the next 40 minutes guaranteed to inspire you with our signature blend of wisdom, experience, and banter. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. And yeah, exactly what the forecasts are going to be for, yep. that, for that particular site, what the current weather is, what the weather was in the last few hours. Yep. Um, it takes all of that, and then you predict ahead what it's going to be. And there you can see, okay, if I am to change the thermostat in each room to this, I can reduce energy. I stay in the band of temperature range where it's comfortable. Cost less, obviously. Uh, you can prioritize your load. You know, you can say, okay... Renewables are going to be more in the market one hour from now. Let's just hold off cooling until that time. So you reduce the CO2 emissions significantly as well. Welcome back to another action-packed episode of Humans of Purpose. First off, a big thank you to our season sponsor, Neon Treehouse, for all their amazing social media support. We're loving having Leadership Victoria as our current sponsor too. Folks I've met who really impressed me often have one thing in common. They've done a Leadership Victoria program at some stage, most likely the Williamson program. Great timing for you then. The Williamson program is open to applications for just one more month. I'll link to more on the Williamson program in the show notes, but I can say that 2019 Williamson has been a formative and incredible year in my leadership journey, and I catch up with Williamson folks from my year and others regularly. These are professional peers, social and support networks for life. As we flagged last episode, our Milestone 300th episode is fast approaching, which will be an in-person celebration on Friday night, the 22nd of September, including plenty of food and drinks, a DJ set from the new Sensation DJ 10pm, and all at the Ritz-Carlton of co-work spaces, the Commons Cremorne rooftop overlooking Melbourne. More to come on this to follow. If you would like to express interest in attending this epic experience and celebration, there's a short EOI form in our show notes to complete, and we'll be able to keep you in the loop if you can fill that brief form out. We'll have an Eventbrite and LinkedIn that will go out to our community soon for any places that are left over. This week, I'm thrilled to bring you my conversation with Dr. James Kahn, who is Principal Software Engineer at HAL Systems. HAL is Predictive Self-Learning Climate Control for Commercial Buildings. It delivers occupant comfort whilst minimizing energy use. How are young in their startup journey, but their story and James's story to date is just fascinating. From particle physics research in Germany to AI applications in energy usage, and now to Hal in Melbourne. James is quietly spoken, but my word, he's achieved some great things in his time on this planet. This is an episode focused on climate tech and how useful applications such as smart AI-powered control of energy usage in commercial and potentially residential buildings can have a huge positive planetary impact. To give you some way to think about the size and scale of this impact, consider that commercial buildings are responsible for almost one-third of total global energy consumption and nearly 15% of direct CO2 emissions. In Australian commercial buildings, the latest findings show that typically 60-65% to 65% of the energy consumed is used by heating and cooling. So closing the gap in this area, even just a little bit, could take a big chunk out of future emissions and do a great deal for the planet. I hope you enjoy my conversation with James as much as I did. James, great to have you, mate. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. 
How do you feel about our new standing up arrangement for a podcast? I quite like this. I specifically requested standing desks at work because I love standing when I work. We're well aligned. Can't stand sitting down. I'm a programmer and eight hours a day sitting there. Yeah. It's a nightmare. I work in tech as well and just not having to stare at a screen while I speak to you and stand up, it's like I'm not in tech. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. What a break. <laughs> and Phil, it's Friday and, and you don't work on Fridays. Tell me a little bit about that to start with. Yeah, yeah. I've uh, switched to a four-day work week, um, which I mean, I'm working at a startup now. So this is, you know, very intense four days and then I get a three-day weekend. Um, and honestly, it's been quite amazing. I have this, I used to have the problem that I would finish my work week. I'm completely obliterated on Friday. Can't do anything then. Saturday, I'm sleeping in, trying to recover. You got to do whatever your life admin sort of thing. And then you've got maybe one day on the weekend out. Now I've just switched that to Friday and for me, Saturday feels like how you probably feel on Sunday. Yeah. And then I think, oh, great, I got another day. Oh, you're, another like, day you're a lucky guy. And is, this across the, is that across health systems? Has everyone got that arrangement? Uh, no, 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 no. The others but are working flat out. Yeah, I've got that one. No, that's brilliant. And because the four-day work week in tech is becoming a very um, big cross-organization uh, thing, as you would have seen. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of companies trialing it, right? And they had this massively high success rate of companies that want to continue that going. I'm hearing increased productivity and happier people. The happier people for me is like just a bit of a no-brainer. Yeah. Um, increased productivity makes sense as well. But um, I think there are just challenges around how organizations bill on the financials as well that sort of might push against it a little bit. Yeah, it's it's a funny thing. I mean, like I can definitely feel it prevents the burnout because, I mean, we're sort of going hard on that four days and I'm just flat out programming and, you know, your brain's sort of in a in a stir at the end of it all and, and that just like gives you the space to recover and come back fresh the next week. To so give people an idea of how hard you are working, it's you said it's as eight to late pretty much for those four days or? Uh, I come in usually about 9.30. Um, yep. Because the the founders they have to sort of drop the kids off at school. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I make sure I'm in when they're there, and that's, that's good for career longevity. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but no, and then I end up yeah sticking around usually until about seven p.m. or something. Yeah. Do you have dinner there, or you just go, go home for dinner? Oh, look, sometimes they will they will like give me a bit of food there, but usually I try and get home and yep. just take a walk after work and yeah, stretch the legs. Decompress a little bit. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's brilliant, mate. Look, let's get into it. I, I'm so keen to uh, hear a little bit about your background. I think particularly just reading on your, on your LinkedIn, sort of having spent seven years as a in your career in Germany as a particle physicist and then ending up in, as an AI consultant in energy research um, and you've only re- relocated home sort of fairly recently. Yep, this February. Um, yeah, it's look, it's very weird for me to tell you your life story and read your LinkedIn interview. So, so maybe if you want to just reflect a little bit on, um, you know, the seven-year career in uh, particle, um, being a particle physicist and then sort of that transition to AI consultancy and whatnot. Yeah, sure. Um, got it. Where do I start? Uh, so I, maybe my, let's start, how, why did you go to Germany and like how did you find your feet in particle uh, physics? Yeah, it was it was a little bit sort of – Particle physics I ended up in because I had this curiosity of just how things work. Yep. So I was notorious. I used to annoy the hell out of my parents because I would just take things apart and I wanted to know how they work. And I'm not an engineer, so I didn't put them back together. I would just take them <laughs> apart. I would come home and like, you know, the whippersnippers and pieces. On you sound the, like on my one-year-old. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He doesn't Good. put anything put, back together. Perfect, perfect. Put them into particle physics. Um, but yeah, so I sort of, it's like a sort of natural endpoint for this. You just keep taking things apart and taking things apart and you get down smaller and smaller and smaller and you start getting to what's the fundamental building blocks of the universe, basically. Um, so that's sort of how I got into it. And then how I actually went to Germany was by chance because I, I finished my master's here. I didn't really want to stay in academia at the time 
Um, I just wanted to move in industry. Started shopping around, looking at the jobs here. Didn't really love what I found. And then the professor that I had worked under, he knew of a position that opened up that had a very specific skill set in mind where they needed someone who had a computing background, which is what I had also done in my undergrad, um, and the particle physics background, and understood the experiment that I had worked for. So they basically just said, if you want to come here, you know, it's yours. We'll fly you out That's here. That's amazing. Three years, you can live here. Uh, you get a salary. We'll pay you. Um, you know, you can research at one of the top at top German universities. Does that happen often? Uh, that sounds like a pretty irregular situation. It probably it happens more than you think um, because you start when you get into that side of research, you start to get into such niche skill sets and such niche um, I don't know areas and and so there's a thin wedge where there'll be some people who really want that. Well, it's more that there'll be some people who are qualified for it just because they've spent, you know, yep. these are massive experiments with yep. a thousand people working on it and and there'll be one very particular part that they need someone who knows how to operate yes. that yep. chunk of the machinery. Um, and so they sort of, they don't have much choice for it. And of course, the researchers, they want to keep researching this stuff. So there's usually a nice little mix that when a position opens up, you have a pretty fair idea of the few people who would be interested and qualified for it. So you, you are like the perfectly falling te uh, Tetris block that completes the set. Yeah, actually, this, this has happened a couple of times now because after I finished my PhD in Munich, uh, they needed someone who had worked in this particular experiment um, and someone who could work in the computing center there on what we call grid computing, which is kind of uh, all of the research institutes, they will pull their resources together and they will use that to process the physics data because there's just heaps and heaps of this data coming out of the experiments. So they needed someone who had the mix of these two things who could occupy a postdoc position because that's what they had the money for. Yep. And that was exactly when I finished my PhD. So it was just perfect. I yep. sort of just, yeah, like you said, it was the Tetris, Tetris block I could just slot right in. <laughs> <laughs> that's perfect. And so did you have a strong computer science background as well? Uh, it was a lot of self-taught Um yeah, I didn't. I did some of the courses in university, and that gave me a bit of um, you know C and, and operating system knowledge. Uh, a lot of it was just I. It was one of those things where you get influenced by one or two people early in your life. So I had a physics teacher who was also a programmer, uh, and he gave me a couple of books. I think he recognised that was sort of an interest of mine. So he gave me a couple of books about computing. Um, one of them was Takedown. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of that. It's a sort of famous case of a. There was basically a hacker in the US and it was how the FBI managed to track him down and sort of described his process. So that's like quite a good read. It is, it is. Yeah. Highly recommend. Um, and the other thing was I had a friend of mine that I used to skateboard with uh, and he was kind of like that classic hacker kid, you know, he'd bring his laptop everywhere and he had little things on there to show me how you like break into people's Wi-Fi, that kind of thing. And that also got my interest. And so it was very sort of self-taught from that domain of it. Yep. Um, now then, you run massive dark web operations, I'm guessing. Oh, I can't talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> Gold. <laughs> um, but yeah, so so that's sort of the niche that I fit into. And and my experience has been that a lot of the, I mean, there's a very standard, you know, set of classes you can take in university, but that's not what sort of defines the researchers yeah. that you come across there. Yep. Everyone has sort of their own background, their own particular things, uh, little flavors of whatever they've done as side projects or things they just happen to have a chance of working on. Uh, and so those are the that's what makes people fill in those sort of niches in research and put everything together. When you're doing this work in Germany and sort of just soon after, how common is the phrase artificial intelligence or AI? And is it in the lexicon? Is it sort of happening at scale? Uh, yeah, I mean, people throw it around everywhere. It's sort of the common term that you do now. It's 
I mean, it's obviously a buzzword, right? You put mm -hmm. that in if you want um, funding grants. Of course, you yeah. have to mention artificial intelligence. Yep. If you want news pieces, of course, you do artificial intelligence. Yep. Um, it, and I know it annoys the hell out of some people because they will insist this is not artificial intelligence. This is machine learning. As far as I'm concerned, I don't really care. If people know what you're doing, then they know what you're doing. That's right. <laughs> That's right. But I, I, I suppose the crux of my question is like, you know, um, that time ago in Germany, um, do you see a huge shift in the prevalence of AI both in practice and in the lexicon? Like was it kind of – was everyone as obsessed with it back then as hype and buzz or was it more being used in industry and ML applications or – yeah, it was it was actually a bit of a niche thing when I started. Yeah. Um because I went over there in 2016. Before that it was really just yeah, sort of your nerds in yep. programming who were interested in new tools and actually I mean the people I knew doing it they were just interested in new ways to be lazy and this was a way yeah. to automate a lot of things that weren't automatable before. Um but it started to emerge in physics. And it was really, really niche at the time. I remember when I started, there was, in my experiment, there was myself and one other guy in Hamburg working on it. And we were the only really prominent ones in Germany. And it was very much experimental at that point. Um, you know, it wasn't a proven technology. The, the actual type of artificial intelligence and the type of neural networks that people were using, that was still being developed on the fly. Yep. Um, but it really exploded sort of the years after that. So by the time it hit sort of 2019 and 2020, that was kind of where the hype was. And everyone was starting to throw resources into that. Research groups were trying to specifically hire students who had backgrounds in artificial intelligence to try and sort of build up their groups in-house. That's awesome. And the linkage between sort of your AI work, um, consulting and also energy research, how does that happen and play out? Is that sort of in Germany where you make that move? Is it to, to Helmholtz? Yeah, yeah. So I, I sort of uh, ran out my time in in particle physics, as in I did did my PhD, and then I did a couple of years of postdoc there, and then I'd reached a point where I'd sort of done what I wanted to, and I, you know, the passion just sort of started to fade there. I sort of thought, okay, I want to move on, do something else, and the the AI interest was really growing a lot at that point. So I was running the machine learning group um, within the experiment. Uh, and I was a librarian for that chunk of the experiment as well. Um, but I didn't really have that many people to talk to about it. And there was a guy at the computing center where I was spending half my time. And he was sort of the only AI guy that I really knew. So I just kept bugging him and bugging him with all of my <laughs> questions and all my ideas. And one day he just turned around and he said, look, I'm like building a group here. Just come and work for us. Like you're just asking me all the time. What, this what, is obviously what, what you want to do. Just come like, here. What, what, are you, what is it like you bugging someone? Because you very uh, seem very like softly spoken and not like a buggy person. What, what would you do? Oh, not when it comes to the nerdy stuff. For that, I would just <laughs> keep coming up. I'd be like, okay, what about this idea? Like, okay, if we take this, if you think of the network like this kind of thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's awesome and very exciting. And so how far do you think AI has come sort of since, you know, your time in Germany and, I mean, obviously sort of hit the mainstream and, you know, it it's, seems to be, as you say, um, there's probably a bit of a divergence between its pop culture and Google Trends sort of amount that it's spoken about versus how much it's actually used in useful and, you know, high-fidelity ways. But just curious your thoughts on the, the kind of rise. Yeah, it's it's come just miles, yep. like absolutely miles. Um, and this is sort of obvious from the fact that it's exploded into mainstream. The time it normally takes things to go from research out into mainstream knowledge is usually a lot longer than this. And this is 
God, I don't know, 2012 or something, it really started to emerge in the research space. It sort of had its like second rise. And then now at 2023, it's only taken 10 years and it's absolutely exploded onto um, sort of the public sphere. In terms of how far it's actually come from the hype and to the to the use, there's this sort of interesting discrepancy between AI in the lab and AI when you, what they do is they will test it on benchmarks. So you have sort of standard things, ChatGPT, for example, they ran it through a bunch of sort of university tests and exams. Yep. Um, you know, you'll see these things where they say it's gotten so-and-so percent on AP calculus. Mm-hmm. It's in the top 10% of students or yep. something like that. Um, those are very fixed and that's kind of like doing something in the lab. The difference between that and when you take it to the real world is still absolutely massive. Mm-hmm. And you can see this in the fact that every time companies would try to launch products with ChatGPT, for example, in the background, it's kind of fizzled, and I don't know if you've ever used these. The outputs are pretty generic, and it's like pretty what plain. kind of products? I mean, they had this for sort of you know AI-driven search engines uh, where it will try and summarize the the results for you. Or yeah. there was ones where they even tried to bring it into the research space where it will sum- summarize research papers. For yeah, you. and it's it's sort of um, it picks the wrong things and just like doesn't. It's it's usually just very generic. Yeah. Um, and, and it seems to have a problem um, from what I've seen with AI. The, the challenges around judgment and salience. Okay, so some some of the core things is that um, the discernment around what's really important in something is not always picked up, um, but also like filtering out the noise and what is the most relevant, useful, and important thing is sort of less clear from analysis. Yeah, they they do come with a lot of fluff, and I, I sometimes wonder if it's um, a little bit of a insurance thing there. Yeah, they try and have Edging to make sure. Bit. Yeah, exactly, yeah. because they have to make sure that the answer is complete yeah and so they try to just cover everything you know it could be this or it could be that yep. um you got to take all the things into account and and obviously as a person you just want the summary you want the too long didn't read <laughs> <laughs> One sentence. yeah exactly tell yep. me tell me what's in it yep. yeah yeah no that's that's super interesting so um look massive amount of change do you have an analogy for like the the pace and scale of change that this is sort of creating this ai boom because i, I sort of when I talk to people, I sometimes think this is a bit like the shift from dumb phones to smartphones, maybe, you know, the the, the iPhone. Um, it could be a very flawed analogy. It's definitely just my way of saying that this is an explosive change in in, um, in pace, scale, and kind of application. Do you have an analogy that you favor for the, the, the impact that AI is having and how far it's come along? I can't say I've thought of an analogy for this. It's I, I would say it's sort of on the precipice of that. It to me, it feels like it's still waiting for some sort of uh, breakthrough there, and it's that yeah. same that same issue that we train this on a whole corpus of data, um, but it's only really comfortable within that space. It's not able to you know launch itself out into new novel um, whatever explanations of things. It can't deduct things from uh, text that you give it. So I think it's still waiting for that jump in technology mm. before it gets that kind of uh that launch i'd say that's a good analogy the dumb phone to f- the dumb phone the smartphone mm-hmm. um one and i think once you can get it pervasive in your products in the market space then you'll see that jump come out yeah i mean that was the same thing right it had to wait until the the 
technology for smartphones was there. It just had to wait until Apple could make a product that people accepted and bought, and then it exploded yeah. everywhere because everyone wanted to keep up. Yeah, well said. Yeah, and we haven't really seen a commercialization version of that. Um, OpenAI tried to, right? You have the sort of GPT-4 that's a paid version. Mm-hmm. People started to flock to it in the beginning. Um, I quite like Bard, actually, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, I haven't tried Bing. I hear that's pretty interesting as a sort of integrated search and AI. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, look, I'm a, I'm a Google man. I love the suite and all the tools, so that's why I'm partial to Bard. But, yeah, I hear GPTs coming out with new things all the time, and even at work, our team uses it heavily for sort of comms and marketing. It's a great time saver. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, and they've got the, like, they've got plugins to try and help it work with different types of inputs. Yep. You, know, you can get it. Uh, from the mathematics side, you could plug into Wolfram Alpha and that'll let you give something like a Google search engine, but for mathematics. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, yeah but it's, I, I feel like it's still waiting for one, I don't know, there's something missing there for it to work with. Yeah, agree. One, one of the big areas that is being developed for it is a thing called context length, which is your standard GPT-like technology. From OpenAI, for example, for ChatGPT, you have something like a 32,000 context length which is basically how many words can it keep in its short-term memory to use to decide what the next word it's going to output. Oh, it's just like the self-referential kind of thing? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like the way it works is you will give it a text. For example, say you give it a question. Yeah. You've got all the words in the sentence. It will read all of those words and then put kind of all of them together in a smart way to predict what's the next word going to be. Right. Then it takes that next word and that next word is part of the context and it feeds that back in, still with your question, and it predicts the next word. And that's really interesting. I guarantee that 99% of listeners, including me, would not know that that's how that works. Yeah, that's how it works. So it's, it's yeah. a sort of like iterative procedure where it's just saying next word, next word, next word, next word, and those get added back into the context. Well, when you put it that way, maybe it's not such revolutionary tech. <laughs> oh, most of, the, most of this stuff, when you get down to the nuts and bolts yeah. of it, it's, it's effectively just multiplication. Yeah. That's, that's what's going on in the bottom of yeah. it. Yeah. Um, you, made, you made that sound like you're opening around, I was just really interested in things, and then I got to particles, and that's the smallest thing, so. <laughs> yeah, well, that's it. Exactly, yeah. So now I'm onto AI, and how does that work? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But this, this thing with the, the context link, that's where a lot of the research is going, because say, say I've got a document that I want it to summarize. Yep. If that document has more than 32,000 words, like this is a big legal text or something, I can feed it this but it's only the last 32,000 words that are going to be used when it's trying to decide what yeah, the next word is that's interesting and if you want this thing to be adopted by like legal is a big domain for this right because yep. that's a huge I'll, portion yeah, of legal text work. blowing up exactly yeah and so you need this thing to be able to process hundreds of thousands of these yeah. words preset libraries as well on like long legal exactly. judgments and, exactly yeah. yeah and you want it to be able to summarize those in a short way to tell you okay you know, for example, these are the cases that you want to check. Yep. It has to be able to read all of those cases and mm-hmm. keep them in memory. So that's where a huge amount of the the current research is going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's quite fascinating. I mean, I mean, the the other thing that's interesting for me is like, um, you know, people just think having ChatGPT and Bard or these other tools being there is great, but you need to know the prompts. They seem to be increasingly important in getting it to do the things you want it to do because you've got that whole thing: quality in equals quality out. Yeah, you put shit into the system without much, um, you know, clarifiers or kind of um, cues, then you're going to get crap results out. Yeah, yeah. This is. Um I think the the term for this is in context. Oh, what do they call it? In context learning or in context um, use. But a lot of the sort of startups and a lot of the products trying to be built around ChatGPT do exactly this. So they're not taking the technology and you know fine tuning it themselves or developing it further. 
they're taking the existing ChatGPT and then, like you said, coming up with intelligent prompts that you can then take that fixed prompt plus the thing from a user of your product yep. and then ChatGPT will return the thing that you want yeah, it to return. which is useful for your application or service or whatever you're trying to develop. Yeah. It's very interesting. It's sort of like a curated way of just getting the right prompts to give you what you want for your product or service rather than actually building novel tech. Yeah, I was, I was thinking it's a little bit of a funny thing because it's, it's kind of like having an oracle that you don't touch and you just come up with smart ways to ask questions of this oracle yeah. to get out and Ooh, I love that. I love that. It's a bit of like a tricky thing that you yep. want to... <laughs> yeah. And you, you can see that if you watch like Vikings or 300, there is an oracle and like that's great Greek mythology where, you know, you go to the oracle and basically get these cryptic responses unless you ask exactly, good questions. Yeah, unless you ask the right. So they need a prompt engineer because <laughs> that's the problem. <laughs> and even if you ask good questions, you might get equally cryptic responses, but that's the story for another day. <laughs> so the link between um, AI and energy and climate tech, so what drew you there and sort of what, what's the upside potential there? Yeah, so what drew me there was, um, and this is part of what sort of ended my time in, in physics, particle physics is very insular, so you – work the theorists come up with the theory and then the experimentalist which is what i was um we would test the theory and then we'd go back to the theorist and it's sort of just this circle of trying to understand how things work but it doesn't have much application outside it's only incidental application outside you know we invented a technology to try and measure some particle and that technology it turns out also happens to be i don't know useful for tracking cars in a street or something like that yep um but I started to reach a point where I wanted to do something where I could work on it and then see it being used in the world. Yep. And I wanted it to be something that was actually useful for people. Um, and obviously climate is something very useful if you can contribute very to useful, that. Very useful, yeah. Um, yeah, and I think I just felt a bit bad about, you know, I had all this education and all this knowledge about AI and about technology and I wanted to do something sort of good with that. Do you also think that, like, I often think about, like, just the, the heavy use of computing and tech, you know, like, it's an obvious sort of, like, impact that you want to maybe ameliorate against as well? There's there's some very interesting studies about this, um, especially in the AI domain, because I don't know if you've seen the numbers, but it's it costs millions of dollars to train these giant AI models. Yep. Uh, and if you actually look at the CO2 emissions that they correspond to, they usually equal something like the launch of a rocket. Yes, yeah, so no, they're absolutely my, massive. My only analogy would be just like my knowledge that blockchain was like incredibly environmentally costly activity, even though originally yeah. it was pitched as something that was very good. But that was sort of one part that was overlooked maybe a little bit. Yeah, I I, I would hope that AI is doing more good than blockchain. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. I, I would I would say almost certainly, but yeah. I'm cu- but I it's 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 an important question. It's yeah. an important question. Um, and we we actually started to struggle with this a bit. Um in the research group that I was in because we were an energy group and we were just burning through resources yep. and we were still in research actually. So we had some application that we could see being applied in whatever solar plants yep. somewhere, but it was still kind of detached. It's awkward, and, isn't it? Cause you, yeah. you, you need to short term burn more energy to come up with an energy saving solution uh, yeah. and then hope that you reach a point of inflection at which you kind of start to offset all of what you've done before, plus make a big dent in the, in the global you know, yep. scale. Yeah, yeah. We, we were kind of struggling with that. Like, are we actually going to break even on yeah. this? Yeah. Or would we have been better just sitting at home with the computer off? <laughs> but actually the, the group kind of pivoted. So it's, it's, there's now two sides of the group and one of them actually works on energy efficient AI and they like host hackathons within Germany where they pull people in to work on your results of getting um, 
optimal performance with the least amount of energy and you get judged on the energy use. And it's yep. up to try and kind of encourage that low energy version of AI while still progressing forward. Yep. Yeah. Nice. Nice. And so t- take us up to Hell Systems and sort of why you joined Hell, what it's all about and um, the great work that you're doing there. Yeah. So I, after I came back from Germany, I'd sort of still, I still struggled a bit with that problem of, um, is my work actually having some impact in the real world? Um, I don't sort of had enough of time in Germany, wanted to come back to the, the sunshine and smiles here in Australia. <laughs> um, yeah. And so I, I came back and I was just looking around. I went to some, there's some expos that they have here at the like Melbourne convention center, for example, where energy companies will come and show off kind of their latest tech of what they're doing. Uh, and there was some startup pitches that, you know, the Victorian government helps seed startups. Uh, and was there, it Launch, LaunchVic or whatever? Yeah, LaunchVic. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah, yeah. LaunchVic and I think it's called Civic. Yep. Yep. Civic, kind of those guys. Yeah. So the health systems people were actually in that Civic program um, and they were one of the two sort of winners of that Civic program that they were in. Uh, and I got talking to them there and they were talking about how they had this idea for the way that commercial buildings operate their sort of heating and cooling systems is they just set, okay, temperature is going to be 22.5 degrees in every room. Is that the optimal human desired temperature? It's Yeah, it's kind of the average for, there's a sort of a comfort band that people have, and this changes depending on the season. Yeah. Um, but that's kind of, if you just take the average, that's sort of good enough. That sort of lands you in that comfort zone most of the time. Yeah. Obviously, it's horribly um, energy inefficient because mm-hmm. if you've ever been in one of these, you know, city office buildings or something 7 or 8 a.m the system turns on it just blasts the heating until it hits 22.5 and then you know we're here in australia the sun comes out and shines on the building and suddenly the thing goes oh crap i gotta turn on the ac and then the ac is running full bore the whole day yes and that was that was exactly predictive at all just like continuing to do the same thing knowing or very dumb yeah (laughs) yeah yeah and that was that was exactly what the the sort of health systems people um they they had developed this technology to try and do that in an intelligent way but for their house, they have this kind of big open plan house with lots of glass windows, um, lots of sun coming in through the roof. And so they wanted some sort of predictive control there. They built it for that. And they also work in uh, sort of the building um, yeah, fabrication design side of things. Um, and they realized, okay, this is a big problem there. We've got a solution that actually works pretty well. And this can help companies for number one, save money. So it's a good thing from from their side. Yep. It saves energy, obviously. Yeah, I like I like the twin effect, by the way, and I think that that's what will really move the market. Yeah, yeah, oh, it, it has a huge potential. If we can, it's it's one of those things where if we can sort of demonstrate this in one place, then everyone comes rushing yep. to it. Yeah, um, and it's 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 very nice in the fact that the the way it works is we predict what the temperature is going to be in the next few hours. Yeah, and we predict what it's going to be if you uh, to switch off the aircon or to switch off the heating. And do you, do you do that by sort of correlating with like just analytics or data around what the temperature is outside at, the, at that location or yeah it's it's based on sort of the history so we take yep. a bit of the history of the of the building and for the particular zones of yep. control from the system and yeah exactly what the forecasts are going to be for yep. that for that particular site what the current weather is what the weather was in the last few hours yep. um it takes all of that and then you predict ahead what it's going to be and there you can see okay if i am to change the thermostat in each room to this I can reduce energy. I stay in the band of temperature range where it's comfortable. Costs less, obviously. Uh, you can prioritize your load. You know, you could say, okay, renewables are going to be used more in the market one hour from now. Let's just hold off cooling until that time. So you reduce the CO two emissions significantly as well. Yeah. So it bundles all of those things together. And at its core, and this is where I came in. 
um, it has a sort of machine learning and physics engine there. So it's taking physics principles about how um, thermal energy works, basically, so how zones in a building heat up and cool down. And then we have the historical data. So you can fine-tune the physics equation for that to see, okay, how responsive is this particular room to the sun and how responsive is it to the outside? And obviously from an intuition perspective, this is uh, how much window does it have yeah. and is that window north-facing? But we can pick that up from the data. Yeah. And you've got a, a building obviously has many, many zones. These yeah, giant yeah. commercial buildings, these are the skyscrapers you see in the city. So you have hundreds and hundreds of control zones. So, so you're in a lot of buildings. You in houses and resi as well? or uh, That's a plan. I mean, we're an early-stage startup. So there's I want two- you in my house. So not, not, you, you can come over. That was awkward. But I'd like your technology in my house. <laughs> Sweet talk to you halfway through the podcast. <laughs> yeah, no, it's um, that was the first thing, right, was they, they built it in uh, – their house is kind of split into into two big parts, yep. basically two sort of units next to each other. And yep. it's, it, that's the first installation is the residential one yeah. there. And it's so that that's the test case. Then you've gone commercial, and then you might revert back to doing also resi. Well, because we're because we're early stage yeah, startup, yeah, we're we're, we're going commercial. Yeah. yeah. Um. So we're sort of you know talking with the stakeholders now, yeah. and we're talking with the controls companies. So they're the yeah. ones that actually operate these things. Um. And yeah, at the moment we've got our sort of first prototypes ready for installation. We're getting ready for that in the next few months. Um, do you do you want to pilot at my house or my uh, my my folks' holiday house? Is te- terrible. We've actually control. we've actually already been approached by several people about this. Okay, specifically so this is not a novel idea. <laughs> this is not like me coming up with a, a great idea that's uh, <laughs> very novel. Okay, good to know that uh, that was a dud. I can um, say it's it's very nice to work in an office where that's the prototype. Oh, because I can imagine. It's the perfect temperature all the time. Yeah. Not to rag on the commons, but a level two in winter is bloody freezing and then it's too hot and then it's cold again. Okay. And yeah. I like, mean, that's not my problem mainly. It's only my problem as a person experiencing that, but I don't bear the economic or climate cost of that. Well, actually, the, the, the companies who operate this, one of their metrics for their success is how many complaints they get from Good. tenants. So Good. if you were to complain- yeah. They're going to have to search for a better solution. Do you want me to on the way out? <laughs> See how that goes? Please do. I'll put one in the suggestions box as well. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I think it's interesting because we talked about the twofold impact around sort of um, reducing CO2 emissions impact and also, um, you know, saving money, which is sort of you, you'll have an interesting Venn diagram of people who care about one or the other and then both, which, which I think is particularly interesting from a consumer standpoint. But then there's also like your experience as a person in that smart environment, like it, it would just – the reason that interests me is, like, I would just love to be in a place that has, like, climate control where I'm at a good temperature and I don't have to think about it. Like, the convenience and utility factor of that would be incredible. It's it's great when I leave the house in the morning because I don't have to think about what I'm going to wear that day. Yeah. Well, what's, what's it like – so, assume your office is fitted out with all the hell tech and whatever? Yeah. Well, you don't, you don't actually notice it. Um, that, like, that's what I mean. Case, so, it's... like, do you notice – you don't notice it, but, like, do you notice not noticing it? I, I do specifically, actually, what I do notice is like, it'll give a little beep when it switches on the fans and the prototype thing, just so we can hear it. And I will notice that like the fan will switch on and that's when I will be like, oh, you know what? I'm like a little bit warm. And then the thing will switch on and come down and there'll be like, there's mechanical ventilation in the roof uh, and down near the bottom um, to sort of let air flow through as well. Yeah, That's the same thing. I'll hear this little beep and then I'll be like, yeah, you know what? It's a little bit hot. And then the, the cool air comes through. So like when you go home or when you come here, like do you think like, oh, 
this is weird. The temperature isn't as good as it is for the other 80% of my week. <laughs> Look, I, I live in one of these sort of old townhouses yeah, yeah, with yeah. the hardwood floor yep, and yep. these single pane window things. Yeah, we're, and so it's absolutely freezing. Yep. And I'm thinking, yep. God, what yep. am I doing here? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. I've got to install Hal. <laughs> I feel you. Yeah. So you want it to? I, of course, yeah. Well, that, that's the best possible thing working for a company where you want the next uh, iteration of the product. That's, that's brilliant. Oh, I'm going to take one from the office next time I go. <laughs> what do you, what, how are you projecting sort of the current climate impact of um, what Hal's doing and the future potential impact that it could unlock? Look, I, I, we have sort of estimates from our, our prototype and there it ranges um, basically from 10 to 25% on their energy savings. Um, the numbers are a bit weird in terms of scale because these systems in commercial buildings they're around 60 to 65 percent of the energy use so you'd be shaving 10 to 20 percent off that effectively um the yeah buildings themselves it's around 30 percent of global emissions i think it is for the like operation of buildings and then you take that 60 percent or so it comes out around 50 percent of that um is for the like space heating and cooling so that's the kind of scale you're dealing with. Like it's a third of the emissions and then you take half of that and that little number that's left over, that's total world emissions, you could shave off 10 or 20%. Of that. So this is like quantifiable almost quantifiable, global exactly. impact. Yeah. That's, and that's kind of the goal from our side is yeah. if we can um, sort of see and say, okay, we've actively helped reduce this amount of emissions. I mean, that's that's an absolute win from our perspective. Oh, it's massive. And so how many people are working at Health Systems or an early stage startup? Uh, it's, it's a small team. There's four of us there full time. Uh, well, I guess I'm four days a week. So, uh, we have, uh, another guy who's coming in one day a week and he's kind of our, you know, buildings expert. He knows the the ins and outs of exactly how the building operation systems Mm -hmm. go. Um, but that's basically it for the team. We had, uh, there was one or two others who helped out with the prototype. Um, they were sort of doing as a part-time thing and they've moved on, uh, elsewhere, but yeah, that's sort of where the team's sitting at at the moment. It's absolutely extraordinary. So huge potential, massive things in the pipeline. Very excited to follow Hal's progress, and we will, I'm sure, get you or another Hal person uh, back on to talk about it and hopefully um, implement some Hal systems here in the podcast room in the comments. So <laughs> please do. Evenly please do. temperate conditions. Um, let's talk a little bit about AI and just sort of more generally because it's such a hot topic at the moment. I mean, the, the first one I want to call out is sort of that discrepancy between like, you know, extraordinary abilities that are touted and real world application. And, you know, do we think that basically AI, are we too bullish on AI would be the sort of the TLDR question? I I would say not. Um, and there's a specific reason for this. It's AI went through a big phase of hype earlier so basically last century and we didn't have any of the computing power at all to be able to do anything with it and then it went through what they call an ai winter where all of that disappeared attention went elsewhere and then it was sort of you know World Wide web this kind of thing um now ai has come back through i guess they call it AI summer uh where there's the hype behind it and for all technologies there is this excitement around the potential of what it can do and then there's the real world impact of what it can actually do yeah and that real world impact is uh, that real world effectiveness is usually some years behind. In AI, it's it's whatever four years behind, yep. something like this. Yep. Um, but as long as that hype keeps the field moving forward, then that delayed four year behind thing still keeps progressing. So we still benefit from the the effectiveness of AI and the improvements in AI. 
even if the hype is a little bit beyond what its actual ability is. Yeah, are. yeah. So yeah. the discordant hype doesn't really matter for you because you're actually using it effectively to build change in yeah. systems. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's the same for all fields. I mean, you'd see this when whenever there's hype around space, for example, that produces some funding into it. It, it excites the next generation of researchers. They go into it. Yeah. And then later down the line, you kind of see the real world yeah. impact of this thing. You almost need like that um, that feedback loop and that self fulfilling prophecy almost. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And if that if that kind of hype is not there and everyone is a bit down on what it can do, then no one's going to invest in it. Yep. No one wants to get into it as a as a researcher yep. or as a as a programmer. No one's excited to make products around it. And so, exactly like you said, a self fulfilling prophecy. The thing kind of just fizzles out. What do you make of this uh, this big uh, blow up in NVIDIA and this sort of global uh, GPU chip shortage and just maybe if you can talk about the importance of GPU processing chips for AI development? Yeah, so the GPU is, I mean, it was originally uh, just something that gamers would use and it's really, it's really tailored to a specific kind of computation or calculation which is doing lots and lots of very simple calculations in parallel. Um, in video, this is a very obvious thing. You have many, many pixels, and they need to be going at a very fast frame rate, and so it needs to be able to deal with all of those pixels in parallel and send them up to the screen. AI is a little bit similar. It's it's a very large network of neurons that are all connected. You input your data into this, and then it needs to be able to perform a whole lot of calculations in parallel, and they're relatively simple calculations. They're just multiplications and additions, effectively. Um, but it needs to be able to perform all of those across that huge network of neurons in parallel and then output a result very quickly. This is sort of different to CPUs, which are the ones that people are probably more familiar with whenever you buy a laptop and it says, you know, Intel inside, that kind of thing. That's a CPU. That's very general purpose. It can do a lot of different calculations. It can't do them great, but it can do a lot of them. Mm -hmm. And that, that makes it really useful for general purpose computing. But when you want to do something specific, you need these GPUs. And there's been this kind of arms race for size because this is one of the big findings that we've we've had with AI is that it's a bit it's a bit like if you think of a brain. If you've got more neurons in the brain, if you've got a bigger brain, the thing is going to be smarter. And this means that you need to make GPUs bigger and you need to make the memory capacity of these GPUs bigger. And actually neural networks these days are so big that you link many of these GPUs together. Yep. And the market leader for a very long time now has been NVIDIA for this. They've just absolutely dominated. And so all of the supercomputers that you see that are used to run and train ChatGPT or Tesla uses it for their um, for their own processing, all of that, the the sort of advanced microchips that they're using, all of these are built by NVIDIA. Yep. Um, in terms of the politics side of it, uh, I stumbled across this incidentally while I was sort of in my early days of AI research where I was working with some sociologists on something about AI's use in microgrids and just reading through some white papers. And there was one from the US. It was an advisory, um, I think, in uh, like a nonprofit for the advisory um, group for the US that was talking about how they need to actively stop China getting access to this because it's a strategic advantage. Um, which was shocked me at the time because th- that this was a public thing that they would just so blatantly talk yeah, about. Yeah. But you've seen this now. There's sort of embargoes on what China can access. Yeah. Uh, but hasn't of- hasn't uh, ByteDance just bought out like 100 billion like GPU chips from NVIDIA already? Yeah. I mean, look, they're, they're doing everything they can to stop yeah, it, but it's, yeah. it's one of those things where this markets is- Markets sort of are markets, right? Markets are markets. Yeah. Um, the thing's going to progress regardless. 
And it's, I guess it's just sort of stopping the inevitable there. Yeah. And, and, and I, I think that's a fascinating thing you've brought in sort of the geopolitics of what really should be around tech and markets. And, and it sort of has real world, I guess, power dynamic consequences. Yeah. I mean, uh, from even from just the military perspective, yeah. you've got like uh, whatever drones. If you've got something like a self driving car technology that can recognize things, identify things, and take actions based on that. And you think about putting that in a drone, it's a very, very obvious interest from the military to get a monopoly over this technology. Yeah, so. well said. And and this is a perfect segue to my question uh, next, which is sort of about um, are we paranoid enough about AI and the, the downside risk of it really um, scaling and rolling out to, to a whole bunch of new actors? Uh, yeah, it's, it's a tough question. There, there's a big analogy there in kind of a nuclear arms race. Um, between countries Mm. the difference being that for nuclear weapons you need sort of very large labs and you know researchers centrifuges whatever to to actually build those things for ai you just need a bunch of gpus and in terms of scale okay for everyday person it's a lot of money to spend whatever 10 20 30 million dollars on a supercomputer but if you're talking about organizations that's actually not that much for many organizations companies and especially for countries to get to get, to get access to. Uh, so in terms of worry, yeah, I don't know if there's much you can do about it. <laughs> yeah, and I suppose so this comes down to, you know, like do you worry about things that you can't control or, you know, and, and I guess from a theoretical conversational perspective, no, we can't control much of what's happening. And I suppose the natural segue is just say we have a mild um, concern or mild paranoia around this falling into bad hands and bad things happening with AI as most technologies, you know, there'll be groups of people who will use it for the wrong intended purpose and around that. Is there a sort of case for regulation? We sort of had famously this um, this plea from Sam Altman to stop AI development um, for a little while and there, there have been other calls for, um, you know, a US-based or a global enforcement body to look at sort of um, regulating this. What do you think about all that? Yeah, I think it's good. I think the the regulation generally doesn't keep up with what's happening. It's usually very reactive. Yep. Um, EU, the EU has been surprisingly good on this. They've yep. been trying to develop this AI Act where they effectively they classify AI into different risk categories and then they have requirements for what has to be done to secure that. So very high risk things. There has to be very clear documentation about what's going on. has to be tr- very transparent. Um, usually the government, I think, has to have some sort of be able to look into this and basically veto things that they think are going to be dangerous. Yep. Um, and they've tried to structure it in a way that it doesn't prevent, uh, you know, sort of your average person who just wants to develop yeah. a little bit of AI tech or your yeah. average researcher or company or something. And we should call out, you know, the utility of the um, the the networks of, um, I wouldn't say amateur, but just sort of hobbyist uh, programmers who are doing amazing things in, in the GitHub kind of space, building out um, really interesting AI tools. Oh, yeah. I mean, the open source community is yeah. the reason why, com- why computing is where it's at today, yeah. Yeah. completely. Yeah. yeah. It's sort of it's the democratic version of what's going on. I mean, you have OpenAI yeah. and, and, and Meta and Google and they, yeah. they can build stuff in-house, but once you've sort of got the masses working together on something, it's, it's hard to beat that. Yeah. yeah, Mate, fantastic. It's Look, there's so much to talk about here. Um, and so, look, I think we've covered a lot today. How can people connect with you, learn a bit more about your work and about health systems too? Yeah, I mean, so health systems, um, obviously check out our website, take a look there. Um the, if you want to connect, LinkedIn is probably the best way. Mm-hmm. Um, just James Khan on LinkedIn. You can also search Health Systems and you'll find all our members there. Um, and yeah, if anyone is interested or just likes to chat AI, I'm always happy to chat. Um, 
I do also try and go to, there's an AI meetup in Melbourne that happens every month. I think it's called the ML AI meetup. Yep. Uh, and if you ever want to go along and chat to AI nerds. I want to come. I've already told you I'm coming. So let's um, talk about that offline too. And um, I can actually, shall I share the meetup link in the show notes for this? Yeah, sure. Yep. Yeah. And I mean, there's interesting talks. We had one, uh, there was a guy from CSIRO who's using AI, how they try and du- model how dust moves around the country. And this is how they do sort of, you know, the asthma warnings for people. Yep. Uh, I think the last one, there was one from the University of Melbourne about how they use AI to sort of model the movement of galaxies so yep. you get a real insight into how it's being used in astrophysics yep. there. Um, just sort of a, like a very nice diverse range of this. To put this politely, would I be too dumb or and or ignorant to attend these meetups? God, no, 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 no. It's, okay. it's, it's a very diverse group. You get uh, a lot of people from sort of the business side who want to just get an insight into yep. what the capabilities of AI yep. are. You get research researchers, you get hobbyists, yep. you get... I don't know. There's a, a guy that I was talking to from there who does, I think he does like the dashboards for the ATO. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And he was sort of just interested in data science and, and AI and he showed up and Fantastic. it's yeah, very welcoming environment there. Fantastic. Yeah, please come well, along. Thank you for thwarting my concerns and uh, thanks for being on the pod today. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player and why not share it with a friend or two? If you want more from your Humans of Purpose experience, become a Humans of Purpose member today through our new platform, Supercast. All you need to do is hit the link in our show notes. If you have a message to share with our audience about your brand, products, or services, we have a wide variety of paid promotional packages available. Please get in touch by hitting the link in our show notes.